welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm your guest host, Greg Wilpert. Venezuela held legislative elections on Sunday, December 6. This was the first national election since opposition leader Juan Guaido declared himself to be interim president of Venezuela in January of 2019 and then formed a parallel government, parallel to the official government of President Nicolás Maduro. Guaido was subsequently recognized by approximately 50 other governments around the world, mainly in Europe and Latin America, even though only uh, the only institution that he controlled in Venezuela was the National Assembly. Since then, Guaido, with U.S. support, organized also a failed coup against Maduro. Sunday's National Assembly election was crucial for various reasons, one of which was that an opposition loss means that Guaido theoretically loses any claim of legitimacy in Venezuela. However, Guaido and an important chunk of the opposition decided to boycott this election, thereby guaranteeing its exclusion from the new National Assembly. However, 107 political parties did run, with 14,400 candidates competing for 277 seats in the National Assembly. The parties were grouped into five main blocks. According to official results, turnout was quite low, with only 31% of eligible voters participating. Those who did vote ended up supporting the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, or PSUV, with 68% of the vote, resulting in about 177 seats um, of the 277-seat legislature, which turns out to uh, be approximately 65% of the legislature. Joining me to discuss the election result in Venezuela and what it means is Ricardo Vaz. Ricardo has been living in Venezuela since 2019, where he has been part of the writing staff of the website venezuelaanalysis.com. I should mention that venezuelaanalysis.com is a website that I co-founded in 2003 and on whose board I still serve. Thanks for joining me today, Ricardo. Thanks, Greg, for inviting me. So what was at stake in this legislative election? Um, and that is, why would you say was it important if it was important? Yeah, it was definitely important because uh, what, what was at stake it is the country's legislative body. So Venezuela has five different state branches, and this is one of them. And crucially, it was the only one that was not under the control of the government or under the control of the ruling party, we could say, it, because the, the opposition won in a landslide victory in, in 2015. We can kind of do a quick recap of what happened after that, because the opposition won this, and very convincingly, uh, in December 2015. And this was probably their their highest moment where they thought they could really overthrow the Bolivarian revolution. And essentially, they used the National Assembly as a kind of springboard to try and topple the government. So they did lots of unconstitutional things. They tried to remove Maduro from office, even though that's not under the competencies of the National Assembly. And eventually, this led to a protracted battle with the Supreme Court, which ended with the National Assembly being declared in contempt and all its decisions null and void. So the National Assembly essentially disbanded. And then in the middle of this political crisis, there were elections for what was known at the time, what is known as the National Constituent Assembly, which took over the legislative duties. So from the, the perspective of the, of the ruling party and of the government, it was crucial to win back the National Assembly to kind of bring a certain harmony between institutions once more. That, that, that from the, pers the perspective of the government. From the, the perspective of the opposition, uh, it, it also, it's also very significant because, as you were saying in the introduction, being president of the National Assembly is what allowed Guaido to proclaim himself interim president, even though 
always bears reminding there is no he, he didn't have a constitution constitutional grounds to do so but still that was kind of the his uh, legitimacy argument which was also used by the by the corporate media they always referred to him as the president of the national assembly and from that from that post he could assume this this interim presidency and this this parallel government which is more of a of a, a make-believe government than than one who actually has or wields any power so the these elections in a way put an end to this to this logjam uh, at least theoretically, because as you were saying as well in the introduction, the, the Guaido-led opposition said from a very early moment that they were not going to participate, that they were going to boycott. So then what does this mean? Because constitutionally, the National Assembly ends its term now in December so that the new one can take office in January 2021. So basically what the, the Guaido opposition or the US-backed opposition, we can say more broadly, is saying is that they're going to extend their mandate uh, indefinitely until something happens uh, so it's not clear what, what that is it's not even clear that they have an idea of what that is but that seems to be the the plan going forward so they were significant in the sense that they helped uh, settle where the institutions fit in and and who's in control in the end but they didn't really uh, put an end to the to the to the political to the political battle and especially when it comes to international recognition um, actually, I'll get into the international recognition in a moment, but I just want to ask you about something because you mentioned that, you know, the, and I mentioned it too, obviously, is that the opposition boycotted. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, I also mentioned that there were opposition groups that participated. So I just want to briefly touch on that issue. That is um, the division of the opposition. Uh, how significant was that? Yeah, that's that's always important to clarify, and, and from a, a journalist's point of view, it makes it, our life tricky because we have to refer to this opposition and the other opposition. So basically, what happened was that Guaido was uh, hell bent on on getting a foreign intervention or pushing for more sanctions to really oust the government by force, and he had this coup attempt in April 2019, and there were other uh, equally unsuccessful attempts. The most the, the most recent one was this uh, very bizarre paramilitary invasion attempt in early May. And uh, several opposition groups, first from, from this moderate wing led by veteran figures such as Claudio Fermin or Henry Falcon, who was the, the opposing candidate in the 2018 presidential elections, they started to see not only that this strategy was doomed to fail, but it was also uh, increasing the hardships of the Venezuelan people, particularly by endorsing and calling for more sanctions. And so they broke ranks with, with the Guaido sector and engaged in dialogue with the government in an attempt to re-enter normal politics, you know, to put it to put it like this, with a view, of course, towards taking part in these elections. And they actually won some significant concessions. Uh, there were some there were renovations in the electoral authorities, there were changes to electoral law, uh, there was an, a significant increase in the number of deputies from 167 to 277 with a view towards uh, boosting the participation from minority parties. So in a way, uh, this minority sector changed, the, changed the, the way the game was being played. So this was the first uh, breakup uh, within the opposition. And then a few months later, so this was mid-2019. Mid and then at the end of the year, there were sectors from within the mainstream opposition parties, the, one that's, the ones that are behind Guaido, they are so, the so-called uh, G4, so the four largest opposition parties, Democratic Action, Justice First, Popular Will, and The New Time. Uh, most of them 
had uh, sectors which were also against this idea of uh, trying to wait for an, for an intervention or pushing for sanctions, and they also wanted to run in elections, and so they, they also broke ranks. This led to a, to a standoff in the National Assembly, which led Guaido to actually lose the presidency of the National Assembly uh, in, in January this year. And this, this, these sectors of the opposition then got into a judicial battle in which the Supreme Court intervened in uh, a very blatant way to, to hand the party leadership to the sectors that wanted to run in elections. And so they did. Uh, then the question was, were they, would they be able to capitalize on the, the opposition votes. So if, uh, if we go back five years, the opposition had a huge turnout. And now there are these, there were these sectors led by Guaido, Guaido wanting to boycott and there were these others who wanted to take part. Would they be able to, to, to get the opposition to, to go out and vote? And, and the answer is no, they couldn't. That's why there was such a low turnout and that's why the, the, the Socialist Party and uh, its allies won such, a, such a, an overwhelming majority. I want to get into the vote itself. That is, um, you know, internationally now, uh, there have been a number of countries, and we're talking about, the, of course, obviously the United States. Uh, Secretary Pompeo came out with a store, uh, statement saying that, you know, this was, you know, obviously they don't recognize this election, that it was fraudulent. European Union came out with a similar statement, uh, not recognizing it. And so did a number of countries of Latin America, uh, they, uh, belonging to this so-called Lima group that supposedly was supposed to find some kind of a solution to the crisis in Venezuela. But of course, you know, one has to recognize that uh, until recently, it included only conservative governments that were opposed to the Maduro government. Um, but they also uh, rejected uh, recognition. Now, uh, I believe Argentina, Mexico, and Bolivia obviously did not sign that letter, uh, implying that they are recognizing, I guess. Uh, I don't know exactly if they have come out with any official statements yet. But uh, wh what is um, the status of that? And what arguments did those uh, uh, observers and, and, uh, and countries give uh, that did not recognize the uh, election? What, uh, what reasons were behind that? Yeah, I mean, th this goes back to what I was saying uh, a bit earlier on, that even though it was significant, several things did not change. And one of them was this issue of, uh, of recognition. It, it really wasn't uh, unexpected. All of these countries that you were mentioning had already stated that they were not going to recognize the, the election. One case that I would like to highlight is that of the European Union, because the, the Venezuelan government, after it uh, changed electoral laws and got into disagreements with the opposition parties, really made a big effort to invite any international observation team that was willing to really come to the ground and witness the process for itself. And they extended invitations, uh, high-profile invitations through the foreign ministry to the United Nations and to the European Union. And the European Union has been in this kind of uh, trying to find a middle ground position between the kind of uh, extremist course uh, dictated by Washington and uh, you know standing completely aside and trying to to foster some kind of negotiations but they always you know when when push comes to shove they end up falling in line behind the united states and so in, in the case of the elections the middle ground that they tried to find was that they wanted the elections to be postponed uh for several months because they said they didn't have time to organize a, an observation mission that which i find a bit hard to believe but that, of course the, this can't be done the, the constitution dictates that the elections have to be held now and so they had to be held now. The European Union could really not demand this of, of Venezuela. And so in the end, they had no choice but to 
continue with this with this uh, charade of supporting this uh, uh, imagined <laughs> this imaginary Guaido administration. As for the other countries you were mentioning, Bolivia had uh, representatives here, representatives from the from the movement towards socialism. So I, I haven't seen an official an official statement, but I'm guessing that they will have no no issues in, in recognizing and reestablishing diplomatic relations, which were broken after the coup in of November 2019. Argentina and Mexico were kind of like the European Union in trying to find find a middle ground and, and boost dialogue efforts. But they had endorsed uh, the holding of elections. I, I don't I don't recall seeing any statement pertaining to these particular elections. But we'll have to see in the coming days. I'm sure that's also being that's also a subject of of negotiations and pressure right now. You know who who recognizes who recognizes and who doesn't this incoming national assembly. So um, now, in terms of the actual vote on the ground, I mean, you were there, you were able to participate and view. I mean, see the observe the election. And uh, I imagine that, there, of course, you know, this is happening during the pandemic, which actually hasn't affected Venezuela anywhere near as strongly as it has affected other countries of Latin America, most other countries of Latin America. Uh, but uh, still, that no doubt also play, probably played a role in this election. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that is, uh, what was the election like uh, itself the day of, but also the run-up to the election in terms of access uh, to the media of the different candidates uh, and their ability to run for office? Yeah, let me start with the pandemic. Uh, it really, I mean, it can become a bit of a mystery, you know, why Venezuela hasn't been more affected by, by, by COVID-19, even though uh, you know, we can praise the government and we should for taking action early and for having uh, this healthcare system that is more prepared to take healthcare to the communities and not have people need to, to move themselves towards uh, hospitals and so on. And so they were prepared. They were very uh, quick to react. And that perhaps gave them a, a bigger margin to to act with regards to COVID-19. And there, at, some, at, at some point, there was a risk that the cases were really going to explode, but then they quickly faded away again. And so, you know, whatever it is that they did, it worked. And when it came to the campaign, there were restrictions on, on uh, large gatherings and so on, which weren't really followed. Uh, you know, in Venezuela, there's a bit of a... There's the, the respect towards rules is, is very relaxed. And that the same goes for, for COVID restrictions, you know, there are... There are what, what are known as radical weeks and flexible weeks, but sometimes you really can't tell them apart. And so there were really campaign events which were not respecting COVID rules. And it's not clear what, whether that's going to lead to a, to a bump in cases so far. Uh, there hasn't been anything. I'm not sure if that was a big factor in, in the low turnout at the end. My guess is that perhaps the fuel shortages played a bigger role because it made mobility much difficult for voters. And there's always uh, there's also something that we really cannot avoid, which is a, a complete uh, or a, a bigger disaffiliation and disenchantment with the political process. So people were simply not uh, they didn't care about the elections because they felt that this was not going to change the difficult uh, situation that they're in, especially in, in economic terms. As for the for the vote itself uh, during the day. It was, uh, if I had to sum it up in a word, uneventful. So everything ran smoothly. The voting centers opened uh, without any, any major issues. There weren't cases of violence, you know, sometimes uh, in the recent past, 
the opposition tried to violently stop some voting centers from opening. That was also not the case. And then the question became, what was what was turnout going to be? Because uh, there were pictures and you could see that there were no queues, which is owed, of course, to the low participation and also to the fact that the, the Venezuelan voting system is very efficient and very quick. There were also COVID, uh, COVID rules, which uh, stipulated certain distancing, which made, made, it, made it look like there were no queues. But the voting process is very quick, so uh, it's, it's not really expected that there will be very large queues. But then, of course, the speculation was what was turnout going to be. And the opposition, of course, started throwing out numbers that it was going to be, uh, I don't know, 15% or 20% turnout, which uh, would, have been, would have been too low uh, because we know that the government has a, a, reliable, a reliable support base. But yeah, if I had to sum it up, if I had to sum up the vote in one term, it would be uneventful. Then there was a, a delay in the end. Uh, the Venezuelan voting system is known or was known until this election for being very quick in, in delivering results. So perhaps this case, in this case, because there are more seats which had individual races and they took longer before the votes could be tallied and, and, and reported. There were also some uh, reports of power outages uh, in, in some interior states which made data transmission a bit slower. And so we had a bit of, a, of an anxious wait until about 2 a.m. before the first results were known. But, but yes, the, there were no incidents, no complaints uh, throughout the day. Finally, the other thing you asked about the campaign, about media access. Uh, in this, I mean, there's no sugarcoating it. The government was very blatant on uh, who they wanted to favor and, and who they wanted to silence. So, for example, these opposition sectors who entered into dialogue with the government and who then broke ranks with Guaido, they were given, I wouldn't say ample time, but they were given slots in, in state media channels. Uh, that this, this was uh, in very stark contrast with the, the newly formed Popular Revolu Revolutionary Alliance, which is a sector from Chavismo that decided to field an alternative list of candidates. This was headed by the, the Venezuelan Communist Party and the Homeland, Homeland for All Party. And they were completely shut down from, from public media. They had no access to, to state media. They, did, they didn't do interviews. They were not invited for debates. So this was, this was, this was ugly. This was a, an ugly attempt to, to silence this kind of criticism during the campaign. And they, they, gave the, they gave a spotlight to the opposition as a way to try and boost participation, which in the end didn't work out as effectively as, as, one would have, or as they would have hoped. Now, um, in terms of the accusations of fraud, like I said, the, uh, the governments around the world that rejected the results basically said that, uh, that this was a fraudulent election. And of course, Guaido said the same thing. And, uh, and even, you know, and I think uh, Human Rights Watch came out with a tweet, at least, uh, saying pretty much the same thing as well. I mean, what is there any, uh, I mean, is there any... I mean, what do you what do you make of these kinds of uh, accusations? I mean, I, I don't really take them very seriously because these were made before the votes were cast. So you, you can't really claim that the votes are, are going to be fraudulent, fraudulent ahead of time. We should talk about the Venezuelan electoral system just to give a, a quick and dirty guide. The Venezuelan voting system is very hard to hack. It's very hard to, to con because uh when people go in they have to to put their fingerprints so this allows uh, authorities to make sure that they are voting in the right place then they go to a touchscreen machine they make their choice the machine prints out the paper ballot that they insert in a in a little box and in the end they sign out 
and leave. And then at the end of the day, there's a, a random process that, that chooses 54% of the voting centers where these uh, electronic uh, results and the paper ballots have to match. And they've always matched uh, in, this, in the 26, uh, I believe, electoral processes that have been held since the, the arrival of Hugo Chavez in 1998. So these claims of fraud have never been backed by any, any physical evidence. Not only that, when these audits are done, the opposition parties also take part. So they witness that the, the electronic tally and the paper, the paper ballot count match, and then they sign a document confirming that. For example, in the 2013 presidential elections, where perhaps this was one of the, the closest elections where the opposition cried fraud, Enrique Capriles cried fraud, but his party members, his delegates had signed off on all the, all the, all the counts. So it, it, he, didn't, he really didn't have a case, just like the opposition didn't have a case in any of the other uh, elections where they cried fraud, except, of course, the elections where they won. Uh, so in, in the end, fraud is just uh, an ugly word that's used to, to delegitimize the whole process. This, of course, doesn't rule out that there are, uh, how can I put it, unsavory practices from, from the government. And in, in the run-up to these elections, there were a bit, there were, there were a few ugly incidents. There were these cases that I mentioned where the, the Supreme Court intervened in, in opposition parties, basically to say that, to, to rule out uh, the leadership that was in, in place and uh, assign the party leadership to a new ad hoc group that was perhaps uh, precisely the people that wanted to run in elections. But not only did they do this to these uh, center-right and right-wing parties, they also did it to, to the left. So to other uh, Chavista parties, when they got wind that they wanted to run in a separate alliance, there were also interventions in Home and for All, in the, this historic uh, Tupamaros party and, and a couple others to remove the leadership that was more critical and replace it with people who would uh, run in a joint list with the government. In the end, the only one that was spared was the Communist Party. And so this entire alliance had to run in the ticket of, of the Communist Party. So that, that, that is one uh, aspect that we really should uh, put the spotlight on and, and call it into question. And then there are these other kind of uh, uh, these, these practices where they try to to leverage social programs like food distribution and, and so on to try and, and and push people to vote. But I think I don't think that really plays much of a that plays much of a role. That it doesn't make much of a difference, as as we we can clearly see from from the turnout. I mean, there are, there are, we can denounce cases where I don't know some local community leader threatened that the people who didn't vote would not get their food box uh, the following month. We can, we can denounce because that's something very ugly to do. But there aren't cases uh, where we can report that someone lost access to a, to, a special, to, a, to a social program because of not participating in an election. If that was the, I mean, that, that doesn't legitimize that you would use it as a threat, but it, isn't, it hasn't gotten to the point where it has become a, a practice. That actually brings me to the, well, first of all, I just want to comment that, of course, you know, this whole thing about claiming fraud without any evidence is kind of reminiscent of something that's going on in the U.S. at the moment. <laughs> but anyway, leaving that aside, and ironically, of course, it's exactly the same people making that accusation, who, especially here, Pompeo and, and, and Trump, <laughs> who are doing it in the U.S. Anyway, but um, so... Um, what I, um, 
what I want to ask about is, is is precisely this division that happened among the let's say the Bolivarian or Chavista forces, which now uh, seem to be tending towards a division. Now I don't know how big it is or how serious it is, but a division between what you could say pro Maduro uh, Chavista forces and anti or critical Maduro uh, forces uh, within Chavismo. Um, is that true? And how big is that split? How, and how serious is that split, would you say? Yeah, I think that's a fair description. I wouldn't put them necessarily as anti-Maduro, as, but maybe critical is more, is more accurate because they still uh, make a point of saying that the main enemy is, is US aggression and, and US sanctions and the blockade and so on. But then, you know, after that is firmly established, they have very serious criticisms towards government policy and how government policy has, in their opinion, uh, damaged the possible response and the possible reaction that was needed to confront this U.S. aggression. Uh, as to how big and how serious it is, clearly in electoral terms, it's not. I mean, it was very, it was a very underwhelming display from from the the Popular Revolutionary Alliance and and of course the Communist Party, which only had some three percent of the vote, and I believe only will have only one deputy. At the, at the National Assembly. This, this will need to be confirmed in, in, in the coming days. So clearly, they, they didn't uh, achieve any anywhere near the, the result that they were after. That being said, we should, um, just looking at the numbers, uh, realize that, that Chavismo, or, or the government in this case, has been getting less and less votes uh, in any election, we don't even have to go back so far. In in the 2018 presidential election, Maduro got uh, some almost six million votes. Right here, there were less than six million people voting. So this is very, or, or around six million, perhaps. This is very significant. So it means that there's a huge chunk of people who, at some point, uh, consider themselves chavistas and identified as chavistas, and now either they are they no longer do so, or they still do, but not enough to. To vote for the government or to identify for the government with the government. So the challenge for this emerging critical sector was to, in a way, capitalize on this uh, disaffiliated or uh, discontent amidst Chavismo, and they clearly failed to do so. But of course, this is a challenge that uh, goes beyond beyond the election. Of course, we also need, need to take into account that these are our political parties, you know, and inside Chavismo, there are popular movements, and so this election brought a significant dilemma for popular movements because, in a way, they are trying to craft an independent, uh, an independent agenda and the most politically advanced of them, uh, I'm talking about communes, of course, uh, are trying to, to confront the, the path that the government is taking. But they didn't see this election as a, as a moment in which they wanted to really confront the government. So they did not end up throwing their weight behind this alternative. And I mean, I could argue that they had no reason to do so. So this challenge between uh, this or this division between the sector of Chavismo, which is firmly behind Maduro and the sectors that are critical and believe that there needs to be some kind of reorientation of the, Bol- the Bolivarian project, uh, I would expect it to grow wider in, in the coming months. Uh, but at, at the same time, if we are realistic, this, this first sector, the, the sector behind Maduro, is, is much stronger and has a, an almost, has an overwhelming uh, hegemonic control within Chavismo. Now, turning again to the opposition, I'm just wondering also, 
what um, this the, the split in the opposition means for the opposition, uh, and also you know going forward, but also apparently uh, the Guaido faction, which boycotted the uh, legislative election. Uh, they are calling for a national referendum uh, that would basically, I don't know, it's kind of like a, it's not, I'm not sure what the referendum is. It's something about do you reject this government or something like that. Um, uh, do you think that will move forward and, uh, and basically talk about that, that uh, constellation that is of, of this, uh, you know, opposition that's, uh, that's supporting the government and not supporting the government. I mean, supporting participation in the political system and then the, uh, uh, the radical opposition that's not, what does that mean for Venezuela's political system? I mean, which one do you think in the struggle is going to win out and, and why? Yeah, I think that's an open question at the moment. So what's going to, to make, to, to really decide it is whether this, uh, this opposition, which we can, I mean, I'll call it moderate opposition, even though not all of them are moderate, whether this moderate opposition, which got into parliament and has, I don't know, maybe a little less than a third of the seats, whether they can, they can, ha they can have an impact, whether they can reach out to the people and uh, at least have people believe once more in, in institutions and in the democratic process to try and build up and reconstitute themselves as the main anti-government bloc. That, that's the challenge for them. And I would expect the government to try and, and boost it as much as it can so as to, to, to take out oxygen from, from the Guaido sectors. Uh, as for Esther Guaido, he is going ahead with this. It's called a popular consultation, and it has already begun. So it's it's now right now. It has a few days on on social media, and then one day uh, out on the streets. And basically, uh, he's asking people whether they reject the vote that has already taken place. So it's it's uh, uh, it's something. It's a very pointless exercise. But you know, Guaido has gotten us used to these pointless exercises, which then get backed internationally so but but this is a process that has no oversight has no control basically this this uh, radical opposition can claim whatever number they want and that this will, will be framed by the corporate media some rejection of of the elections that had that just took place that being said uh, the road ahead is not so clear for guaido either because he has been in this position for almost two years and nobody who was behind this plan thought that this was going to drag on for for such so, such a long time uh, I mean, they expected that the Maduro government would fall within weeks or months at most. That's why, for example, when they imposed an oil embargo, they granted uh, like a three-month exemption to companies like Chevron because they expected that after that, the, the, the issue would be sorted. But it hasn't happened and the, the government is here and it has uh, basically been able to respond to every challenge and even solidified some of its support, even though it has eroded. And from the, the perspective of the new Biden administration, I mean, Biden has, has come out in support of Guaido and delegitimizing the Venezuelan government as a dictatorship, you know, what, 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 you, what you would expect. But if the goal is to, to really trigger regime change, they will have to make a calculation whether Guaido is their best bet to do so. I, I think at some point, I mean, Guaido has already lost uh, almost all the credibility that he had at some point. So you, you have to wonder whether... Uh, uh, for Washington, even sticking to this regime change strategy, whether their best bet is to still uh, throw their weight behind Guaido, it might not be the case. They might need to reset their policy at some point. Of course, now it's very difficult because the government is in is in control of all the institutions, so it's not clear what kind of negotiation 
could be could be in the works. Uh, it's it's still it's it's still very much up in the air, and I don't think we'll know we'll know too much until until Biden takes office. Well, finally, I mean, we probably can't uh, end without mentioning the role of the United States in all of this. And you already touched on this, particularly expecting, you know, uh, Biden. I, I mean, what what we might be able to expect from Biden is very difficult to say at this point. But I mean, so far, um, how is the U.S. role? Um, playing out within Venezuela. That is, obviously, the sanctions are having a severe impact on the well-being of the population. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, and I, you know, I've in other reports talked about how uh, there are estimates that up to 40,000 people have died because of the U.S. sanctions. And obviously, it's creating serious problems for the economy. Um, but um, so how is, the, how is the population in general, do you think, uh, perceiving the role of sanctions um, uh, and the role of the United States? Um, I mean, uh, yeah, you mentioned earlier that the Guaido faction is supporting sanctions, but that must certainly also having is having an impact on their own popularity because of that. Talk about that that uh, situation a little bit. Yeah, so this much more significant than who Biden supports or not is whether there's going to be any change to the sanctions policy. So this forty thousand estimate you were mentioning is by now uh, severely underestimating the real number of deaths. This was just an estimate from the Center for Economic and Policy Research. In the 12 months after the first financial sanctions against state-owned company PDVSA, so from August 2017 to July 2018, that was their 40,000 estimate. And the sanctions have really gotten much uh, harsher in, in recent months, to the point where every aspect of Venezuelan lives uh, is affected. And of course, that also affects uh, the, the, opposition, the opposition base. And this has also meant uh, a loss of support and loss of credibility for Guaido because he's backing a policy that uh, generates suffering not for, the, not for the government or not just for the government, but for uh, all Venezuelans. Uh, we can debate on how much responsibility the government bears for the crisis and how much we should attribute it to sanctions. But a, a different way to put it is that sanctions have made any kind of recovery impossible. This this has been, this is not a, an un, a contra, this is not a controversial position to hold. So the latest sanctions, just to give you an example, targeted uh, multinational oil corporations which were doing swap deals with with Venezuela. So essentially, they were taking Venezuelan crude, and because of sanctions, they cannot go through the normal the normal financial system. So they would repay in either fuel or diluents that Venezuela would use to, to process fuel. So uh, the United States told these companies, which included uh, Italy's Eni, uh, some Indian refiner called Reliance, also an asphalt company from, from Thailand. And Washington told them that they had two months to wind down their dealings. And this has led, for example, or in, in particular, to fuel shortages. And fuel shortages are incredibly severe because they paralyze the economy. You need fuel to get public transportation running. You need fuel to get the crops from the countryside to the cities and, and so on. So if the Biden administration, regardless of what it feels about Guaido, simply uh, goes back to granting these multinational corporations uh, permission to do these swap deals, that would be, that would be a, a significant uh, amount of oxygen for the for the Venezuelan people and for the government in particular. So that's something that everyone's keeping an eye. Uh, it could just simply be that uh, Biden has other, or the Biden administration, 
as other priorities. And so it's not going to be so focused on, on triggering regime change in Venezuela, but it's still, it's still a standoff that will need to be sorted one way or the other at some point. Well, we're going to leave it there for now. We've been talking about this for a while now. And um, I mean, it's really quite some situation there. Um, I obviously, we'll, I'll keep an eye on this and I constantly do. And uh, we'll probably talk again very soon. Uh, thanks again, uh, Ricardo, for having joined us today. I was speaking to Ricardo Vaz, staff writer with the website VenezuelaAnalysis.com. I urge people uh, who want to learn more to, to go to that website. Again, thanks, Ricardo, for having joined me today. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the analysis.news.